0: My, what a blessing. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you, and Dr. Patterson, it's always good to be with you. When I'm around him, I'm always encouraged and inspired. In fact, uh, my spine is strengthened, my mind is stimulated, and my spirit is stirred. I got up and practiced that this morning. I want you to know that's the kind of influence he has on me. And as I look across the landscape of Alabama Baptist, In terms of churches, we have, as of today, 3,254 churches. And we bring greetings to you because we're here as your support system. We're a part of the missional circulatory system of giving through the cooperative program in order to advance the opportunity for you to become educated, school-trained, iron-sharpening iron in this wonderful environment we call Southwestern Seminary. Alabama Baptist, as a state convention, I'm not talking about states. Now, as a state convention, we lead the SBC in cooperative program giving. We're not the largest state convention. We don't have the largest of churches. In fact, more people live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area than live in all of Alabama. More people live in Atlanta metro area than live in all of Alabama. But collectively and sacrificially, those individuals in those churches are giving giving to advance the kingdom of God and they're here to support you. I I bring you greetings and I want to say on behalf of you thank you for being faithful to the call of God in your life. Now I must confess something. Because I have learned to travel lightly in international travel and also more national travel, I try to do an overnight bag and I keep it with me and I have different I have bags everywhere under my eyes as well as luggage. But I bring this bag with me because they're going to ask me at the airport, did you keep it with you the whole time? So I'm keeping it within my sight. But because of doing that economical packing, I was tempted to use my iPhone this morning in preaching, and am I so glad that I didn't do that? And by the way, I have iPhone Plus, and the font size is big. So I could have done that. I've never done it, but I could have done it. And my, it is providential for me because I am reminded along with you that preaching out of the Word of God, having it in your hand, being able to share the Word, and seeing it in something other than electronic form, I think is still the far exceedingly best way to read and preach the Word of God so I commend Dr. Patterson he gave us a a wonderful oral interpretation in which uh, it takes a lot of experience and training to do that I also must confess something else to you I got up this morning and I had a direction that I was going to take in leading our thoughts in these brief moments together and I changed courses it's something that's been burdening me. And I know it burdens you because I know the heart and mind, the spirit of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I know your president. I know some of the faculty. I have gotten acquainted with some of the students. The aura that we have here, the, the, if you will, the persona of Southwestern epitomizes what I'm about to say. I am burdened like you. I am burdened in the sense that we are not being, if you will, trifocal in our view of the world. Let me explain by that. I believe, as, you, as do you, that the gospel is to preach, be preached here, there, and everywhere, right? To the ends of the earth, right? But I'm becoming much more convinced that We can become so focused on the ends of the earth that we forget those right in front of us. Now, one of my roles as executive director is to be a pastor, encourager to the pastors. This last weekend, I spent hours, Friday and Saturday, with two pastors being terminated, wrongfully terminated, might I add. Picking up people on the side of the road in that regard, trying to support them, that's part of the role. But another I believe is that we as executive directors and leaders in the states need to remind our people that God is still in the saving business. That God is still saving people. That John 3.16 is for the 21st century. So I come with you today to be burdened. I call it a blessed burden. And I'm going to let the Apostle Paul do it best for expressing it. In Romans chapter 10, we'll just see one verse. That's all that time gives us. I'm reading out of the New King James Version, by the way, because we do still have some King James-only churches page, and when I go and preach in those, I just keep my finger over new and try to preach with, uh, and keep my finger in and just quote it from the old King James. But I read out of the New King James. I'm glad you have other translations and... Many of them, or most of them, are very accurate, and some of them, of course, are paraphrases. But let's just look at this one. The word Israel is in there, but in the original text, it's it just there in the English text because in the original text it's the context of Israel. But you know it well. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that Israel, for Israel, that they may be saved. Now, that, that is a burden, and I have to remind you, uh, in my own sense, you know this, that Romans 9 through 11 is, is an interlude between some of the practical and doctrinal expressions given by the great apostle as he's writing this epistle to Rome and he gives us, if you will, his expression of the gospel. But there in chapter ni- chapters 9 through 11, we could get off on all kinds of theological rabbit trails and some of them don't even have rabbits and we could get off into theological ditches but right here in the midst of that is a burden that the apostle expresses that I share he says brethren brothers and sisters my heart's desire this is not a casual sense there my heart's desire the intensity is there you could see it you could feel it it leaps off the page my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that my people, Israel, might be saved. Just simple thoughts. The, the blessed burden is fueled by passion. The, words, the word passion is not there, but when you start talking about my heart's desire, he again, he's not just talking about some superficial, casual, temporal, emotional feeling that he's under temporary conviction and he's going to check off something. No, he's talking about the intensity of a passion that just flows through him and has to be flooded with expression. The word passion is used in our vernacular now more commonly than when I grew up. I I used that in a sermon not long ago and I had a young couple come up to me and said we don't think the word passion is very appropriate to be used in the pulpit and I began wondering checking my spirit I thought to myself have I done something wrong she said we've we've always thought of it as a sexual expression and then I began to think don't we call the week passion week don't we think about passion in terms of suffering Aren't we thinking about passion in terms of intense focus and conviction? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And the passion that he has is not something that's going to fade in time. It will be with him to the moment of time he takes his last breath. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that Israel might be saved. I fully believe that it is far easier for those of us who have been Christians for a long time and been in the ministry a long time to have a passionless ministry. I believe that we can go through the mechanics of leadership and we can go through the the organizational structure and the working parts that it keeps, keeps things moving that passion eludes us. That cannot happen today more than anything else. I pray, my burden is that I'm praying that I might have a rekindling of a God-sent, Holy Spirit-drenched passion. Passion for the people here, there, and everywhere. And I'm going to tell you, I just want to say this to you, there are still lost people in Alabama. And there are still lost people in Texas. I'm praying that I'll have a passion for them, and I pray you do too for those around you. Now, it is fueled by passion, but it is founded on prayer. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God. Oh, my prayer to God. The passion leads to prayer. Prayer without passion is just simply a recitation of selfish requests. Passion has to be with prayer if you have passion without prayer all you have is emotion you see his intense desire and his sense of passion just leads him to prayer every time i think about evangelistic praying by the way that's a term we don't use much anymore i I go back to a wednesday night when i was a pastor and and it in, in my unenlightenment in my inexperience i became somewhat annoyed by a lady every Wednesday night who would simply raise her hand during the prayer time we were doing evangelistic intercessory praying and she would say now you be sure and pray for my husband well after a period of time I began to be weary with this because I had been by to see her husband and he had been sort of rude toward me I took it personally I shouldn't have but I did in fact I had one time I reached over and turned the television off. I can't believe I did that. I turned the television off because he wasn't looking at me. When I was trying to talk to him, trying to witness to him, he was just being rude, ill-mannered. I took offense to it, ego out of control. I sort of wrote him off. In my mind, perhaps he'd committed the unpardonable sin. There's another one we don't hear much about. Then one Sunday morning, Paige, I remember it just like yesterday, I preached one of the top ten worst sermons I've ever preached, and I've had some doozies. I, I went down to receive people. Not, but surely no one would come after that if, if a sermon has anything to do with it. This church was not large, and the aisle was not big, but, and I certainly was a little, even a little thinner than I am now, but this guy, 6'5", comes running down the aisle, and I felt compelled to move out of the way because I felt he was going to tackle me. He picked me up off the floor, which wasn't much energy and effect to that, but it was a little bit embarrassing. Gave me a bear hug and just simply said, I just got saved. Oh, listen, I had to have an interview with him. I wanted to know what sermon it was that led him. I wanted to know what it was that I had said, surely some pithy, word of wisdom I had in the sermon this something clicked and I just said to him I said look I I didn't even think that was a good sermon that morning he said I don't know I don't know what is a good sermon (laughs) and then he said um, I said well it must have been something I said he said I didn't hear a word you said (laughs) and I was beginning to become hugely offended and he said, "But I'll tell you what I do remember, and I couldn't get over." He said, "I could listen to your sermons, tune you out." He did a good job of. It, actually, looked out the window. We didn't have a stained glass window; we just looked out the window. But he said, "Every night, my wife would kneel by the bed, and she would pray for me." And he said, "Preacher, I just couldn't overcome her prayers." Now, this is the, that's the spirit of the Apostle Paul. I, I'm just a simple preacher. I grew up in a working-class neighborhood. In fact, in my church, that, uh, which would be pretty typical of size in Alabama, had about 150 in attendance. And back in that day, we had one college graduate. We took a picture of him and carried it around in our billfold. That's the kind of background I grew up in. I grew up in the environment where you just open God's Word, you take it as God's Word, you preach God's Word, you feel what you preach, you experience what you preach. And I want you to know in my best moments, that's how I preach and that's how I've led. But I've not always been at my best. So I'm praying along with you that we'll have a rekindling of passion Fueled by passion of burden. Fueled by passion that will be founded on prayer that will be focused on people. Uh, Listen again. Now, he said he's praying for Israel. Do I remind you? Need I not? I'm sure that the apostle Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. You remember that? But he doesn't mention the Gentiles here. He mentions his people, Israel. He's concerned about his people. He's got the world in his view, yes, but then he's got his heart and his, his sense of intense passion to see his own people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. If we're more concerned about those who might be cons- saved out in the lands in which we, in the countries and people groups, which we cannot even name, and the representatives we have, we cannot even mention their names... If we're more concerned about them than we are the people around us, something's wrong with our thinking. The focus at times ought to be on our people, those around us. I want you to know I'm a product of Alabama Baptist, product of Southern Baptist. And I know life. I know that if life is lived in the quarters, and you've got to understand I'm part of Southeastern Conference here, so I've got to make a reference to football. If life is living quarters, first quarter, zero to twenty, when you're getting ready in life, if you will, and then twenty to forty, you're establishing yourself, 40 to 60, you're trying to get the kids out of the way so you can live again. And then 60 to 80, if God gives you that time, you're in the fourth quarter. And if God blesses you, you have overtime. <laughs> maybe double overtime. <laughs> triple overtime. Quadruple overtime. So people get that. Well, I'm in the first part of the fourth quarter. And I've already lived longer than any male on my dad's side. And without cholesterol medication, I might not be standing here. I'm grateful for it. But I'll tell you this. I want the rest to be the best. You have your lives before you. Do not waste any moment. Have the sense of passion and prayer to reach people in the name of Jesus Christ, the saving name of Jesus Christ. Do not back down and do not let up. I know we live in a cultural sea change, a seismic change in culture. Page last year I was in Vienna, Austria, I always wanted to go there. I mean, a guy from a little old Birmingham community getting to go to an intellectual capital of the world. They were celebrating. They didn't invite me, by the way. I went. They were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the University of Vienna. If the walls could talk, I could have heard a lot of different things, of course. And I walked through those walls, and I saw the bus of people. And for some reason, I cannot even explain I had my picture taken with a bust of Sigmund Freud, and I don't even like the man. I couldn't find anybody else I knew. Well, then our next next stop on this interlude in our mission trip was the very place where Adolf Hitler had made one of his most dramatic addresses. And I began to think about the conundrum. You have the intellectual firepower of all these people in Vienna. And by the way, Hitler was an Austrian. He was coming home. And those people were caught up in the maniacal, mega-maniacal vision of Adolf Hitler. And they just went trooping off in the wrong direction, an evil direction. And then I began thinking, where was the church? A lot had happened to the church in Europe, much of which would be a rabbit trail for us to get on. But there was a little remnant. Some of them we wouldn't agree with totally theologically. In fact, some of us who are evangelical Christians would cringe over some of the things they've espoused. But you think about some of the ones who said no like Diedrich Bonhoeffer and went to, we've rediscovered him, went to the gallows because of it? No, no, no. Even help conspire to assassinate Hitler. You're talking about ethical dilemma. Then I read recently, reread recently about the reported recurring dream that Martin Niemoler had who died in 1984, 92 years of age, had been a World War I veteran commander of a U-boat. In this recurring dream, he was something of a nationalist initially. He saw this man Hitler as perhaps being someone who could solve the problems of their nation, their nation which had been brought to its knees by the Versailles Treaty and World War I's ending, if you will. So initially, he was caught up, and then, no, he saw the evil of it. In 1937, he began an eight-year experience in a prison camp. Fast forward to the 1980s, and the report is that he'd have a recurring dream of Hitler standing at the, before the judgment of God and Jesus asking the question, why did you do such evil? And uh, reportedly, in the dream, He said, well, no one told me that Jesus loves me. I don't know whether that has ever happened, but I can tell you this. There are people who are living in Texas. There are people who are living in Alabama that we take for granted. There are people in this room we take for granted. They really have had an expression of faith, profession of faith, repenting of sins, placing their faith in Jesus. We assume that because of who they are and where they live. One last personal anecdote. 30 years ago this April, Chernobyl took place. About 10 years ago, I was in Ukraine and I was with a a missionary and some Ukrainians, and they were talking about Chernobyl. We, were not, we couldn't get close. Didn't, I didn't want to get close, but Chernobyl was up there. It, actually, it's in Ukraine, northern Ukraine, rather than Russia. And one of them was saying, you know, when this happened, nobody knew the magnitude of it. And, of course, the, Russian, the Soviet government at that time, still the Soviet Union, they were trying to squelch any news reports about it because they didn't know what they were up against, and it looked like a huge faux pas, and they really didn't want the international scrutiny. So they called what we would determine, describe as first responders to come in, evacuate the area, evaluate the situation, and do what they could do, could do to correct the situation by shutting down the reactor. They were called liquidators. Now, they gathered him in a room, so the report was, and they told them, we have no idea how, ba- how bad this is. But here's what we want you to do we want you to write a letter home and tell them as if you were dead tell them you're not coming home we want you to write out your last will and testament and they did all that and thousands of those guys marched in if you will into Chernobyl evacuated the people shut down the reactor the best they could some of them did die pretty soon Many of them had cancer because of the radiation exposure. Now, here's the part that really challenges me. Most all those men were atheists. They were not motivated by their understanding of who God is. They were not motivated because they felt like that Jesus Christ is Lord and we've got to save these people they had a much different kind of motivation. They were concerned about their people. Their people. And they laid their lives on the line because they were concerned about their people. If atheists can do it, surely we can If those who have no understanding, really, personally, of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, if they will be willingly able and offering of themselves in sacrifice, laying down their lives, should not we be more motivated than they? So here we are this morning, the blessed burden. Like the Apostle Paul I say to you, I'm personalizing this, I say to you, brethren, my heart's desire is that our people in Alabama and Texas and North America come to Jesus Christ as Savior. I hope God go to my grave with that sense of burden. I'm going to ask you to stand with me just a moment. We don't have much time, and I I know your time is valuable. You've already had a tremendous inaugural chapel service, so this is what I want to do this morning. I I want us to say something that is so elementary, but if you believe in your heart this expression, I want you to to say this with me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Okay? That's one of the earliest Christian confessions. And every time, Paige, I baptize someone, I always had the church to say Jesus is Lord because he is Lord. I want you to say one other thing with me. If you believe that God is still in the saving business, would you say with me this morning, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads with me in prayer. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if there's someone here who has never, ever professed faith in Jesus Christ, I will not make the assumption all of us have, but let's just assume there might be someone here. I'm just going to simply say this to you. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and if you... Understand who he is. You know you are a sinner for all who sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you pray in your heart, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Help me as I turn from my sins, as I repent of them. And as I receive you, accept you as my Lord and Savior. I want to be your follower now and forever. And this morning, if you're like me and you need a rekindling of your passion. Would you pray some simple expression of that? Lord, help me to have a rekindling of passion, which will translate into evangelistic praying for the people I know because the nations have come to my neighborhood. Would you pray that prayer? And we're going to, I'm just going to cl- close with a simple prayer and then. Your fine, esteemed president is going to come to the podium. But I want you to know I'm with you this morning, one in spirit, that together we might have this blessed burden. Father God, the one and true God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we come together. We thank you for the gift of Jesus The very fact that he shed his blood on the cross for us. Help us never, ever to take that for granted. The grace of God should never be taken for granted. Help us, Lord. Forgive us if we've ever done that. And Lord, this morning we pray, even though we might not have the gift of evangelism, as we understand it, we have all been called to do the work of an evangelist. Help us this day, right now, in this place, to have a commitment to you that translates itself into every aspect of our lives, that our heart's desire and our prayer to you will be that the people we know, our people, might be saved. It is in the name of Jesus we make this prayer. Amen.